Welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Tim Mullaney with Senior Housing News. Risk management is always one of the most important aspects of running a senior living operating company. In 2020, COVID-19 has made risk management even more mission critical. The challenges that existed prior to the pandemic also haven't gone away. I'm joined today by Tara Clayton, Senior Claim Consultant, and Willis Towers Watson. We discuss topics related to COVID-19, but Tara also gives a great overview of other issues and strategies that senior living providers must stay on top of, including arbitration agreements, programs to address falls and other incidents, communication and documentation practices, and the importance of early resolution. Tara has extensive experience dealing with senior living general liability, professional liability, and medical malpractice claims with her previous roles in-house with national providers. Prior to that, Tara was a healthcare and commercial litigation attorney in which role she represented several senior living providers and other healthcare providers by defending medical malpractice and long-term care claims. At Willis Towers Watson, Terry uses her broad knowledge and expertise to develop risk management tools that help clients reduce claim activity. She also uses her negotiating skills and experience to provide clients with strategic and tactical advice concerning effective claim resolution. Before we get to my interview with Tara, I'd like to take a moment to highlight our SHN Architecture and Design Awards. This annual competition recognizes cutting-edge design and excellence in senior living across the U.S. and abroad. If you think you have a project that fits that description and are looking to showcase it, visit shnawards.com. Submissions are now open, and the final entry deadline is October 31st. Now, here's my interview with Tara Clayton, Senior Claim Consultant at Willis Towers Watson. Before we jump into the discussion with Tara, I just want to clarify for listeners that she won't be speaking as an attorney, but is sharing her thoughts on risk management strategies and her perspective on key issues given her role with Willis. So with that, Tara, welcome to the podcast. So just to jump right in, I think the top concern for senior living providers this year has obviously been COVID-19 and all of the related issues. But I want to ask you, how much has the pandemic changed the risk management picture for senior living providers? And I ask that because I imagine that the challenges that existed prior to the pandemic obviously haven't gone away. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I mean, as far as changing, I I think if anything, you know, we all know the pandemic has brought, you know, a host of novel and what I would call unprecedented challenges. So I think it's really just kind of added to that prior risk management picture that was in place. And I say that because to your point, I think it's important to note that, you know, there was risk management, kind of risk management 101 topics and areas that we all focused on before the pandemic started that are still in place and and will obviously continue to be there as we hopefully get through this pandemic and come out on the other side. Yeah. So I guess with that in mind, I do want to talk about some COVID-19 topics, but I think it might be helpful to start with to drill down into maybe just some like risk management 101 kind of topics and get some ideas from you about tools that you think providers need. So I think one of them might be arbitration agreements. Do you agree? And can, if so, can you talk about sort of the current landscape? Yeah, I agree. 
arbitration agreements are definitely one of those one-on-one tools that were at play prior to the pandemic and absolutely still at, at play. You know, as far as, you know, the current landscape with arbitration agreements, you know, it's the same picture that I think we've seen with them over the last couple of years. There's strong, you know, what I would say federal support through federal Supreme Court cases promoting the use of the Federal Arbitration Act and arbitration agreements in general. But then at a state level, it really is kind of a jurisdictional state-by-state analysis. You know, some state courts take a more slanted or biased view of arbitration agreements as it relates to the senior living space and really aging services kind of in general. You know, that being said, I still think it is absolutely, you know, a tool that needs to be used and utilized in any effective risk management program. I, I would highlight kind of some some key things to note, though, when using those arbitration agreements is, one, making sure you have a process to retain them. One thing I, I've seen in some of the claims over the years, you know, the suit comes in and... It's a community that we know is utilizing an arbitration agreement, but we can't find any evidence that an arbitration agreement was actually executed or even presented. So we don't know if it was presented and declined or it just never was presented. Or, you know, we have staff saying, well, we know an arbitration was signed, but we can't find it or we can only find the first page and not the signature page. So in order to be able to effectively use that tool, making sure we've got a, a system in place to retain those agreements. And then the other kind of big kind of bullet regarding arbitration agreement use is the importance of making sure who's who's executing those arbitration agreements. Again, that's going to vary state by state as to whether or not the person signing has the authority to do so. But I would just note, you know, don't have the assumption that just because someone's spouse is their spouse, that that somehow gives them the authority to sign this type of legal document. So really understanding, you know, the laws and your specific locations of where you operate to make sure that, you know, if you're utilizing the arbitration agreements, you're getting the benefits out of that use. Got it. That's really interesting about just sometimes there's no evidence of the arbitration agreement. Is that really just a matter of like better record keeping? Yeah. And that frequently it's just where they're keeping the arbitration agreement. You know, more and more we're moving towards an electronic health record and I'm seeing a greater capacity at keeping the arbitration agreement with the business file and the rest of the medical record kind of together in one spot. But historically, and especially in those communities still relying very heavily on paper records, you know, the arbitration agreement could be placed in its own separate file or could be placed with the business file somewhere else. And as residents, you know, discharge or leave the, the facility or the community, sometimes those files don't make it together with the medical record. And, you know, who knows where they could end up in a storage place. And we know a lot of these lawsuits, they don't happen within a few weeks of a resident incident. It's often several months, if not a year or more after a resident has left a community that it's filed. So you just we have some challenges sometimes in locating all of those relevant documents. Got it. So moving on to another question I had, I think every year we look at reports on assisted living insurance claims data. We report on that on Senior Housing News, and falls are always a top source of claims and payouts. So I want to address falls. Um, I know they can be really difficult to prevent, but I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on best practices or just other perspectives you can share on how providers can be addressing fall risk and fall incidents. 
Yeah, and I, I think, Tim, we're still seeing Falls as that leading claim driver uh, in the senior living space. Most reports that I've seen Falls are right there at about 50% of the claims that, that we do see coming in. And there's a variety of things, there's a variety of ways to kind of approach, you know, a Falls, an effective Falls management program. To me, one of the, the big pieces of an effective Falls management program, though, is setting realistic expectations with the family. You know, I, my experience previously as a litigator taking numerous depositions of, of family members. And I really did get a sense that we have a lot of people in the public who, who have a feeling that, you know, my mother's falling at home, but now I'm bringing, you know, she's being admitted to this community and she's going to stop falling. Like that, that's the consequence of, of my mother moving in. So I think it's just really important to kind of help set realistic expectations with residents and with family members of, you know, we can't stop all falls. Not all falls are preventable, but here are the ways that we effectively help mitigate and try to lessen injuries from those falls when they happen. And here's how we respond. You know, if your mother does have a fall, here's the response plan. So I think that's a a big piece of it. And then, you know, I mentioned kind of having that falls management program that would include having a proper falls policy having strong assessments, and those assessments are done throughout the residency, obviously on admission. There's various state requirements as to how frequent, but at a minimum on admission, any type of change in condition after a fall, any time a resident's readmitted, and then various times throughout the residency, really just staying on top of any changes that the resident is exhibiting that would alter their fall risk. And then a proper post-fall investigation process. So when residents do experience a fall, having a, a robust investigation and quality system, quality program in place, kind of review the, the root cause and what's going on with that specific resident to understand what, what interventions make sense to that resident and are tailored to, to try to address that specific fall risk rather than just using kind of a checklist of those normal common interventions that are utilized. Great. I think that's all good practical advice. And I guess it raises a question for me that it sounds like you're describing, you know, really you need a, a sort of comprehensive falls risk management program. And so I'm wondering if there are other similar programs for other areas of, you know, be it clinical or other areas of risk management, do you think senior living providers should have in place or that insurers will want to know about? Absolutely. The the falls management program and and kind of speaking to that, what insurers want to know about, you know, we were in a hard market, a hard insurance market, even before COVID was known and and took took over. And what we were seeing and, and currently continue to see is increased questions from insurers regarding all of the different type of risk management programs that a senior living provider would have in place. So a falls management program, absolutely knowing that that, you know, 50% of the, the lost claims are coming, a claim driver is coming from falls. It's clear there's a ton of questions around what processes do you have in place, um, kind of hitting some of the things that I mentioned a second ago. But then also what type of infection control plans and program do you have in place? COVID absolutely has kind of heightened those questions and and what a community is expected to have in place regarding a a robust infection control plan. So making sure that you you are addressing the new challenges that have been presented because of of COVID. 
because we know go forward, we're now we're now kind of on notice that these pandemics can happen and how we need to respond. So how are we prepared to address that go forward? But any infection in general, what's the plan? What kind of training are we doing with staff? And what kind of audits and checks are we doing? Another thing that I'm seeing the uh, insurers kind of ask more and more about is communication protocols. And initially, that kind of started in response to COVID. And what I mean by that is, you know, what what protocols, what processes, what methods of communication are you, the provider, using to communicate at that time COVID um, infections and what the community is doing in response to families and residents. But now we're starting to see it be a, a broader just communication in general. And it kind of ties in, you know, I mentioned that setting realistic expectations. Communication is really part of that. How are you communicating and touching the families and residents throughout the residency? Yeah, that's great. I, communication seems huge. It kind of runs through everything we've been talking about in terms of incident reporting, setting expectations, like you said. So I'm curious if you have any other thoughts on communication and what does effective communication kind of consist of or, or look like? Yeah, to me, I... So I, I, I kind of have harped on the setting realistic expectations. And from that, I always think two big drivers are communication and then obviously the documentation piece of it. Mm-hmm. But communication to me is huge and it needs to happen throughout the residency. And meaning, you know, when the, when a, when a resident is admitted, you've got to establish that relationship and really start to build that trust relationship with both the resident and the responsible party or the family member. And the more you can do that through communication, and by communication, I mean setting the realistic expectations, but also doing what you can to make sure that that family member and the resident understand that they are 100% part of the care team. So keeping them educated on you know, if the resident's starting to experience a decline, you know, why is that decline happening? If we're seeing falls, is there a connection to the resident's overall picture that we can help or working with the physician to help educate the family on just so they're staying in the loop? A lot of the suits, I and not all suits, but I think there's a fair number of suits that I've seen that a lot of the issue comes from families not feeling like the information was communicated to them. And they really filed suit because they felt that was the only way they were going to get answers. So I think just establishing that relationship up front, you know, having family members and residents attending care plan conferences on a, a regular basis to keep them in the loop on, on the overall picture is really important. And then two, I think the other piece of communication and one thing when I was in-house, I would always kind of share with some of the communities is the importance of communicating the good information as well. You know, I took a deposition. I remember one daughter who was very upset. And she, during the, the course of the deposition, at one point she said, you know, I, anytime I saw on the caller ID this particular facility's name pop up, she said I would just immediately be upset because I knew they were calling to tell me that my mom had fallen. And, you know, it kind of hit me of, you know, we don't want our families to have that kind of reaction, right? We don't want them to think every time they see a call from the community that it's about an incident that's taken place. So I think call them when good things happen too. You know, if if Mrs. Smith won bingo that week, calling to let the family know how excited she was and the special prize that she got. That way it, you're again kind of building that relationship. So if a bad incident happens, 
it's a different conversation than if that's all they're ever hearing. Yeah, um, that's a great example. And it seems to me to be important to be having this conversation now about communication and setting realistic expectations, because I do think one thing we've been reporting on is that the marketing and sales messages to consumers might be changing a little bit because of COVID. And it's uh, I'm hearing from salespeople that they are stressing safety and the fact that they can keep mom and dad safe from an infection control standpoint in the community as a benefit. But it sounds to me like you're saying that you have to be careful and if that's the message you are conveying to also be realistic about what the limitations are around the safety that can be provided. Is that fair? Yeah. And that's where I think that kind of goes with what it is that you're communicating. So, you Mm -hmm. know, if you're, if you're telling family members that if that's the message that you're communicating, I would also, however, be telling the family members, what are the steps? What are the processes? What are the protocols that you have in place to address, you know, what the concerns would be related to safety, but also communicating to them their role. You know, they absolutely have a role as well to play in this. And it's really, you're just, you're trying to ensure that everyone is on the same page because if someone's expectations are off, and they're not on the same page as everyone else that's coming to the table. That's where we start to see claims in, in litigation results. Mm-hmm. And then I guess one other follow-up question on the last answer you gave. I know you had experience working in-house for operators. So I'm curious about when things do go awry and communication doesn't isn't optimal, do you think it's because there's a lack of a kind of a clear communication policy and framework that everyone follows? Or is it, I mean, I just think staff get so busy, right? That calling a Mrs. Smith because mom won bingo might seem not that important compared to other tasks. So I guess I'm just asking if you have any advice for how to make sure this communication does keep happening on an ongoing basis. No, and that's and that's absolutely a fair point. You know, I know that the staff in the communities have a tremendous amount of tasks and things to do on a daily basis, and then you throw this pandemic on top of it. That it really makes it makes it difficult to add extra things on. So you know, to just to, you know, to the extent to keep that kind of information at the forefront and just you know doing it when you can. Um, you know, I don't know if, if there's, you know, a possible way of kind of flagging to track, you know, once a quarter a family member is, is contacted or just a touch base to check in with families or even check in with a resident and then just documenting that you did that, that check-in. You know, it's not a tremendous amount of extra time and it may not seem super important right now, but ultimately at the, at the end of the day, should, it, should an incident come in, if you have documentation showing all of the times that you've reached out and provided education or updates about the resident's condition to the family, it really takes a lot of steam out of their allegations that they had no idea what was going on, no one kept them updated, and that's frequently what we see alleged in the suits. No one told, told them what was going on. If they had known that X was happening, they absolutely would have come in and moved their mother out or they would have done something differently. So it's frequently this allegation of a lack of information. And the best way to counter that is to have documentation that shows, no, you were contacted X number of times and you knew exactly what was going on related to the fall history. You agreed with the interventions that were in place. It just really helped to take some of that steam out. 
and it, it helps to to if the incident happens when, when when ideally if you can try to sit down with the family and have a discussion and you know some of that early resolution techniques to try to resolve something with a family member if you can show them in writing what all has been going on versus they're just emotionally reacting from being upset. Yeah. Uh, well, you mentioned early resolution. That was another question I had. Just early resolution as a key claim strategy. You've mentioned to me in the past that that's really important. So uh, how can providers achieve that um, early resolution? Well, in order to effectively attempt early resolution, you need to know that the incident happened, right? So I think the the first thing that you, you need to make sure that you have in place is a, a robust incident reporting system to make sure that when an incident happens, that one, there's documentation, but two, that there's a proper kind of escalation, depending on the, the type of incident or the seriousness of the incident, so that those in, in the positions that would be involved in early resolution discussions, like the executive director or possibly someone at a regional level or even an in-house legal department, depending again on the incident, making sure you've got kind of that incident workflow in place and that staff are trained, tra- they're trained on how to first, how to properly respond and take care of the resident, but two, how to then properly make sure that that incident documented so we can start getting reported up as necessary through the workflow. And then from there, you know, it's having that post, that good post incident investigation that I talked about earlier as part of a falls management program but you need to be able to investigate and really understand what happened so you can sit down with a family member and address the concerns that they have and and have a discussion. If there's a way to resolve it, if it's something that even needs to be resolved, you may realize during the investigation that that it's nothing, there's no negligence or nothing wrong on the part of the facility. And you can point to all of the the correct things that were done to the family member. And if they choose not to, to listen, at least you've provided that information. You have documentation that you sat down and talked to the family. Juries would love to hear that you did make attempts to at least talk to the family. Um, I think that helps drive down some of the emotions that juries have as well when they see that we're actively trying to work with family members and address concerns. So you need to know that the incident happened and then you need to know what happened with the incident so you can have that proper conversation. All right. So I do have just a couple of questions that are maybe, I know we've been talking about COVID-19 throughout this, but I have a couple of questions that are a little more specific to COVID-19. But I guess before we get to that, we've talked about arbitration agreements, uh, falls programs, other clinical programs, early resolution and communication, any other risk management 101 type of topics that you think we should cover? A ton, right? And we only have a few, you know, so so much time on the podcast. I guess the only other kind of big area I would raise is around kind of resident vehicle transfers and resident safety kind of being transferred on and off our different community vans and vehicles. When we see those claims, those can be some pretty high severity type claims. So I would kind of just stress making sure that you do have a, a protocol and process in place related to safe resident handling on and off vehicles. And then also making sure that once you've trained on it, that we're continuing to make sure that those processes and policies are being followed. Got it. So before we wrap up, let's turn to the pandemic. Uh, Liability around COVID-19 is, 
a huge concern for providers, I think. And there has been some action to provide protection from claims. Uh, what can you tell us about the status of those efforts? Yeah, so um, I can tell you that at this point, I would say roughly a little more than half of the states have responded and enacted some type of limited liability protections as it relates to the pandemic. Now, the scope of what is covered under those executive orders or legislation and or who is covered really does vary state to state, but we have seen quite a number of states at this point responding in that fashion to try to help respond to the threat of suits that we've seen through advertisements as well as some actual filings at this point. And then on the federal side, currently there is uh, in existence the, the PREP Act, the Public Readiness Emergency Protection Act that was enacted back, um, I think, in 2005 in response to, I think at that point, September 11th had happened and there was also some anthrax attacks. And at that point, President Bush was kind of nervous about what our nation's response would be able to be should we have another type of terroristic attack or even a natural disaster or pandemic such as what we're in right now. And that's where the PREP Act came from. And currently, you know, again, we're still very early stages, but I'm seeing a lot of claims are on the defense side attempting to invoke the PREP Act immunity and the exclusive remedy that's set forth in the PREP Act. We kind of are in the process, I think, of what I'm seeing is a lot of arguments and new new arguments coming out continually as we learn more and more about the intent and the purpose and the legislative history behind the PREP Act, as well as, you know, getting information such as the letter from the Department of Health and Human Services showing that senior living communities can, in fact, fall as a covered person or program planner under the PREP Act in certain situations. So as more information like that comes out, I think it strengthens those arguments. But we're very early in the process. We've had a few that have been remanded for jurisdictional reasons. So no real clarity yet on the PREP Act and and how it will be applied for these COVID cases. But that's kind of where we're at at the moment. Got it. So like I said before, COVID-19 has already been a thread through our conversations and a lot of the topics we've already discussed are pertinent to COVID-19 as well. Uh, so I don't want to harp on it too much, but I guess any other COVID-19 related topics that you want to flag for listeners? Yeah, I guess the only other thing I would flag is for providers to be thinking through at this point, does it make sense to kind of work with their local council where they operate and looking at either utilizing a waiver or like a negotiated risk type document or even an attestation or a disclosure type document as it relates to COVID. It really is going to depend on the jurisdiction as to what document would make sense for your risk management tools. And it's also going to vary. I think that discussion varies depending on are we talking about residents? Are we talking about visitors? Are we talking about vendors that are coming into the building? But I think there's between those that those tools, I think there's there's some that could be used in your toolkit for a risk management perspective, especially as it relates to COVID and COVID go forward as we learn more and more about how the, the virus is transmitted and we're trying to protect our residents and staff members inside the community that I would suggest talking with local council about. Great. All right. So we are coming up on the half hour mark. So I will uh, ask for any concluding thoughts you have, any message that you want to leave people with. 
I guess really, selfishly, I would want to kind of just thank those that are listening and especially those that have been working tireless hours in the community. You know, I'm so blessed to have three of my four grandparents. So, you know, seeing what the staff in these communities have been doing and the sacrifices that have been made does not go unnoticed. So I just have to say a huge thank you to everything that they've been doing. And then I guess I would just end with, um, you know, a lot of the resources I talked about, we have some different tools at our website, www.willistowerswatson.com backslash senior living. And you can also find, it's not there yet, but it should be released soon, a link to our, our new podcast called Risk Conversations, a senior living podcast. And again, hopefully that will be released here in the very near future. All right. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for joining. This was, I think, a really insightful conversation that has a lot of takeaways for providers. So I'm sure that our listeners will appreciate that. So thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me. That concludes this episode of Transform. Don't forget to check out the SHN Architecture and Design Awards at shnawards.com. Submissions are now open, and the final entry deadline is October 31st. Until next time, I'm Tim Mullaney with Senior Housing News. Thanks for listening.